Welcome to the Lance Lambert Ministries podcast. For more information on Lance's ministry, visit lancelambert.org. Today, we go back to July of 2008, when Lance testified of how the Lord spared him as a young Jew in the midst of the Holocaust, and shared his testimony of how the Lord met him personally when he was 12 and a half years old. Listen on to hear Lance tell his story. I was asked if I would give my testimony, and I don't normally do so. So, uh, I do trust that it will be worthwhile. I want to read a psalm, the 103rd psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy desire with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executeth righteous acts and judgments for all that are oppressed, He made known his ways unto Moses, his doings or acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us after our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his precepts to do them. The Lord hath established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that are mighty in strength, that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of him, of his, that do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all ye his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Wonderful psalm. And you noticed in this version, which is the American Standard Version of 1901, that the word loving kindness comes again and again and again. It seems a somewhat old-fashioned word. In some of the modern translations, it is steadfast love. In some, uh, 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 prevailing love. It is an extraordinary Hebrew word. The word in Hebrew is chesed. And it simply cannot be explained in any language by one word, or even by two words. You have a whole number of words that have to come together for this word loving kindness. Mercy is the old King James Version. 
Loving kindness is the revised version and the American standard version. Steadfast love is the revised standard version. And so one can go on. It has this idea of loyal, covenant, enduring, overcoming love and mercy that God shows towards them who he says. A wonderful, wonderful word. And it explains the Bible. It also explains my salvation. And it explains your salvation. God never saved you because you were good enough. And he never saved you because you were worthwhile. We are dust. But in some extraordinary way, the Lord loves us. Why he loves us, we will never know. Not even, I think, in eternity. Why the Lord should ever love such as you and me, we give him so much trouble. It's bad enough that the whole of us were born in sin, (laughs) that we were a fallen people from the beginning. But the extraordinary thing is that once he saves us, we give him no end of trouble. We rebel, we murmur, we hang on to our own self-life. We, we, uh, it is extraordinary really. Just um, uh, how much trouble we give to the Lord. I was born in Britain by basically an accident. That accident was the reason for my survival. My father was the premier count in the House of Savoy. This is the royal house of Italy, of Bulgaria, of Hungary, of Portugal, and originally of Brazil. He was the premier count. He carried the flag before the king on all state occasions. The old king, Victor, King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy, had Jewish blood and was from the Braganzas, and was for that reason very um, sympathetic to Jews. My father was a Jew, as was my mother. She was a Jewess. But I never knew that, because um, my father had nightmares in the end of the 20s and the beginning of the 30s of the last century. It was basically over Mussolini, who was the dictator of Italy. My father warned the king that he thought that Mussolini would be the downfall of the royal house and would be the downfall of Italy. His nightmares grew to such an extent that he told my mother to take me, I was only a a year or two old, and take me back to England. I had been born near my grandmother because my mother wanted her firstborn to be somewhere in the vicinity of my grandmother who would help in the very early days. And so that's the accident, seemingly the accident. At that time, Britain was receiving no refugees, not even babies. But my mother had a British passport. She came from the Jewish community in Dublin, in Ireland. Originally, they were uh, from uh, Lithuania. But um, uh, for this reason, when mother came back to Britain, already pregnant with my sister, uh, she uh, she was able to enter Britain. She had a British passport because I had been born by this seeming accident. I was also allowed to come back into Britain. We never thought, my father, my mother, never really thought that it was more than a couple of years that we would be parted because Mussolini was introducing some of the laws that were to end in the murder of the Jewish people. But nobody thought of Adolf Hitler. Now, I don't know how much you know about history or about the Holocaust. But, of course, uh, 
they were Latins, <laughs> uh, Mediterranean people, uh, and the Mediterranean people don't normally think about Anglo-Saxons or others very much. So uh, they thought that Mussolini was the trouble, nobody else. Mussolini and Franco of Spain, they were the trouble. They didn't think of uh, really uh, Hitler. But just behind Mussolini was a far more serious and terrible demonic being. It was Hitler. I was born in 1931. In 1933, we, I was taken as a little boy from Italy to, um, uh, uh, to Britain. I, of course, don't remember any of it, and the journey or anything else. <clears throat> and it was exactly at the time that Adolf Hitler took Germany by force. From that point onwards, a de a de it developed into the Second World War in which 55 million people died and in which 6 to 8 million Jews died in the most horrific circumstances. I never saw my father, I never saw my grandmother, and I never saw the 56 other members of the family who all died in Auschwitz. In actual fact, the old king tried to save my father. And um, he had a very good intelligence network. And he heard that the Nazis were going to take all the Jews in the middle of the night in the whole of northern Italy. And he knew that it meant they would be killed. So he said to my father, you have to flee. Uh, I will prepare the royal car. We will pull the blinds down. We will put a standard on the car and it will take you to Turin and then up into the Piedmont Mountains where a guide will wait for you to take you over into safety in Vichy, France, where my grandmother lived. She had a chateau south of Lyon. So my father accepted it. He had no trouble. The Nazis were very uh, superstitious when it came to aristocracy or royalty. And they allowed the car to go through without any searching. So my father would say, it was a mistake. Because if my father had only gone into a monastery, or as one of his friends went, he, he was dressed up as a monk, a priest, in the Vatican Library, as the chief librarian. He wasn't, of course, he didn't know anything about books. But um, uh, as a result, he, he was saved. He survived the war. Uh, but my father instead went to... Uh, to Vichy, France, which was an ally of the Nazis at that time. I hope I'm not boring you. Um, but at that point, um, uh, he arrived, Klaus Barbie, called the Butcher of Lyon, was the Gauleiter, or the man in charge of the Nazi side of things in Vichy, France. He hated my family, and my father in particular. My, my father met my mother simply because the old king was so worried about his outspoken views that he sent him as the silk attaché to the Italian embassy in London. And there, at a cocktail party, he met my mother. That's how it all happened. They were then married in the great synagogue in Rome. That's a little bit of the background of the family. Uh, my father's family had the name, we are of the tribe of Judah. My mother was of the tribe of Benjamin. Both of them knew something of their family background. Um, my, father's, my father's family, they have been called Judah in every single generation for a thousand years. So I was called, my circumcision name was Lance Judah Jair Lapidovsky. Our family name was Dobsky. My father was August, Julian, Julio, which is the uh, Gentile way of, of um, uh, taking the name Judah, 
Julian and Julia, or both mean Julia. Praise. And um, so, Count uh, Dobsky. That was that sack. Now, the agreement that father and mother made was that we would come back to Britain. Mother had deep red hair and green eyes. And my father said, I don't think anyone will think you're Jewish. And um, you take Lance, never tell him he's Jewish for these two years until we see what happens. And of course, then my sister was born in Richmond, Saudi England. And uh, so we grew up, we grew up not knowing we were Jewish. One of the very interesting was that we... We were excused all religious instruction at school. We didn't have to be part of the prayers that were said first thing in the morning in the school. I was very happy about that, I have to tell you. Um, and I asked my mother, why, uh, um, why are we different to all the rest of the, the children at school? And mother said, we are modern. We believe that you should choose your religion when you are of age. So I said, you mean I can choose to be anything? And mother said, oh yes. Um, of course she didn't mean it. Um, oh yes, she said, you can, you can be anything. Can I be a Muslim? I said, oh yes, if you wish, she said. And um, so we were excused all religious instruction at school. We grew up not knowing, and we never went into a synagogue, we never went into a church, a chapel. We had no contact with Christian people. I never read the Bible. I understood the Bible was a whole book of legends and myths and exaggerations. Um, and I really didn't even believe that Jesus had lived. I used to speak to the boys at school that had the crusader badge. You know, they belonged to a Christian organization for boys. <clears throat> and I used to say to them, I don't believe Jesus existed. And they said, oh, you must be mad. So I said, no, I think you're mad. I don't think he ever really existed. So that's how we, that's how we went until one day, or can you believe this? Mother came back. It was the blitz when many people were dying on every side. And she said, there's going to be a children's rally in one of the movie houses. We call it a cinema, a movie house. And um, <coughs> she said, I think you children should go. I don't to this day know what entered her head. But off we went to this movie house, <laughs> which was packed with kids. I went with my sister and our two closest friends who lived in the same avenue. <clears throat> um, we couldn't understand this. I'd never seen anything like it. They sang hymns. I'd never heard hymns. And I, they seemed so odd to me, all standing up and singing. And um, then um, they, uh, the next thing that happened uh, was that this man acted something on the uh, a, a platform um, of the uh, movie house um, and I couldn't understand what he was doing it seemed very stupid to me he was a famous missionary from South America <laughs> and um, then they all went out <coughs> to onward Christian soldiers each Sunday school marching out you see which left us four in the centre of this movie house on our own and <coughs> A lady sped across and said, Don't you children belong to a Sunday school? No, we said. And she said, Would you like to? And I said, No. <laughs> and my sister said, Yes. So she said, I will get someone to come to you every Sunday and bring you to Sunday school. And that's how I came into the Sunday school of a famous evangelical church, uh, Baptist church, in Richmond, Surrey. And um, it was very interesting, basically, because um, I endured it. I could not understand them. Everything the Sunday school teacher went in this year and out that year. 
I couldn't even say the Lord's Prayer at the end of those two years that we were there. But at the end of those two years, this old Sunday school teacher who was one of the deacons of the Baptist church went to an old bag and took out books and gave every one of the boys a book. But he didn't give me one. So I sat through the whole of the lesson thinking, why did he not give me a book? These boys are terrible. They let off stink bombs. They took mice and let them go into the sun school to cause a great fuss. I mean, especially in some of the ladies who were the teachers. I remember the leader of the sun school standing up on a chair. Uh, She was so afraid of this white mouse that was running around. I mean, I couldn't have said, why did he not give me a book? It is the Lord's way. Listen to this. I went up to him afterwards and I said, why did you not give me a book? And he looked at me and said, didn't I give you a book? No, I said, you did not. So he put in his hand. I believe he he deliberately did not give it to me. He was so afraid of my mother. But he took the book out and said, here, here's a book. This is your book. And I took it and I saw on the cover C.T. Studd, missionary statesman, cricketer, and pioneer. And I thought to myself, this is weird. I understood that all Christians were um, weird. Uh, They were eccentric, unhygienic. Uh, I, I felt, and my idea of Christians was either very, very ancient people with white hair, uh, like mine, <laughs> bent over, and very old who could hardly talk or breathe. Anyone young, I thought, could never be a Christian. And so I was intrigued. How could a man be a famous cricketer and a Christian? Well, this was the first Christian book I ever read. I would never have read it if he had given it to me at the beginning. The only reason I got this desire to read it was he did not give it to me and I had to ask for it. Then when I got it, I began to think, how can this man be a Christian? Then... I read that book in one week, six days. And I finished it on a Saturday, a Shabbat. And um, I was so moved by what I read. Three things captured me. The first was, this man gave away a fortune. In today's um, uh, measurement, it would have been some 30 million pounds. And he gave it away in one week. Then I thought to myself, this man is crazy. Or he's found something worse more than money. Now you have to understand how I felt, because... We were always getting little things through the letterbox to ask us to help the local churches. Either their organ, or their bell tower, or something else that was perishing in the church or chapel. Um, So I always thought, I used to hear my mother saying, oh, it's disgraceful, sending things to us. We don't believe in God, and they ask us to help their God. I remember being in my pram when I was a little boy and we went past the local parish church and it had a great notice outside asking everyone to help with the bell tower. And it had a thermometer on one side with a tiny little bit of red at the bottom. Uh, and then the, right up to the top that worked the money that was required. And my mother said to me, Lance, do you understand what this is? Of course, I couldn't understand any of it. So she said, this belongs to people who believe in God. And when they're in need uh, of money, <clears throat> they ask us, who don't believe in their God, to help him. 
never forgot it. Now I thought this man has found something worth more than money and was able to give away a whole fortune in one week. Then he went out as a missionary and here was the next thing. When he went for his medical, the doctor said, you can't be a missionary. Oh, said C.T. Studd, God has told me and called me, so I shall be one. No, said the doctor, you are a museum of diseases. But he went out to China with the Cambridge Seven, then to India, and finally to Congo, and he never went back to England. He was a famous cricketer, and he, gave, he sacrificed his fame and popularity. Then I thought to myself, this man is crazy or he's found something worth more than fame and popularity. Then the third thing that I read in the book <coughs> gripped me. He and his wife were very much in love. She came from a very aristocratic family, as did C.T. Studd. And they decided they would part. That she would be in England there weren't planes in those days. She would be in England and look after the home end for prayer and for the finance side. And he would remain in the Congo. And um, I thought to myself, this man is crazy. Or he's found something worth more than human. There was one other thing that gripped me, his humour. I had been born with humour. And I always thought that God had absolutely no humour. And then I found this man, C.T. Studd, who could laugh with God. I began later in my life to understand why Abraham called Isaac laughter. That's what it means, Yitzhak in Hebrew, laughter. I began to understand from my own experience the humor that God has with those that become his friends. So for me, this was extraordinary. And I always remember one thing in particular. In a prayer meeting with all the other missionaries, C.T. Studd saying, the word, your word, Lord. It says that you will give us everything that the soles of our feet tread upon. I take size 14s. We're putting them down on this particular ground in Congo, which the Lord gave. Well, at the end of reading that book, I didn't know what to do. So I stood, because I thought that's the way you pray. Then I thought, no, I think they kneel. So I knelt. Then I felt uncomfortable kneeling, and I thought, no, I think they stand. So I stood up, and then I prayed a very unscriptural prayer. For the Bible says that those who come to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. But I said, oh God, if there is a God, would you please do in me what you did in C.T. Studd. And would you please make me what you made him? That was my prayer. I didn't feel anything. But the most extraordinary thing that happened. I went off that afternoon to, uh, 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 to watch movies. Charlie Chaplin's. And you would have said, well, nothing's happened to him. He's watching Charlie Chaplin. But that evening when I came back from watching Charlie Chaplin, I said to my sister, I would like to go to church. And she looked at me as if I was a ghost. She said, you want to go to church? Yes, I said. I'll come with you, she said. 
So the two of us, for the first time ever, found ourselves in the presence of Christians. <clears throat> in the church service on a Sunday morning, we found it very odd the way they stood up and sang and then sat down and then a, a plate went by and people put something in it. I and mean, we'd never seen anything like it, you see. So <clears throat> we found it all very strange. Then they read the Bible, then we stood up and sang, then they had announcements and they all sat down again. Then they stood up and sang and then finally we had a, a kind of sermon. In the announcement, they, th they said, this evening, eight people are being baptized on confession of their faith in the Lord Jesus. So we too, we thought, what in the world is baptism? What are these strange people going to do? So <clears throat> we went up to our old Sunday school teacher and said, excuse me, what is a baptism? Well, he said, when people have believed in the Lord Jesus and received him, they are baptized in water by immersion. But that didn't mean anything to us. I, my sister said, what do you mean? Do you put them under? Yes, he said, we put them absolutely under and then up. Then my sister said, do they wear robes? Do they have crowns on their head? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but we were kids. I, I was uh, 12 and a half. My sister was ten. <laughs> and then the old Sunday school teacher said, Why don't you come and see for yourself? I'll keep you a seat because it's packed. So we came, my sister and I, we sat on the front row overlooking the baptistry so we could get a full view of the strange rite that was going to take place. And I spent the whole time watching the bubbles come up from the thing, while the poor man preached his heart out. It was Alan Redpath, a famous evangelist and teacher. And um, I, I remember um, the eight people who were baptized were absolutely ordinary people. Bank clerks, secretary. And there was one girl, if I may put it kindly, who was simple. I think she was a little autistic. And they all confessed how they'd come to the Lord. The pastor said, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And then they told their testimony. And now I was so shocked because I discovered that every one of these, the very ordinary eight people, had the same experience as C.T. Studd. I thought he was unique. I thought he's the only Christian in the world, in the history. You know, now I suddenly saw very, eight very ordinary people who had the same experience. They all went down into the water. They were all baptized. They came up. Then Mr. Epath at the end of it said, If you have been challenged by what you have seen and what you have heard, Will you give your life to the Lord Jesus? And if so, will you stand up? Well, I felt an, an extraordinary kind of power that hit me. And I, I was like in a quandary. What should I do? Should I stand or should I sit? And then I whispered to my sister, Shall I stand? And she said, no. <laughs> but I stood. And then a terrible, I was only twelve and a half, a terrible sense of sin came over me. And I wept and wept and wept. Then the old Sunday school teacher put his arm around me and tried to comfort me. And two old people came. So old, they were exactly what I'd always thought Christians were. <laughs> he was white-haired, she was white-haired, bent over. And this dear, a Sunday school teacher said, Ah, Pastor Rose and Mrs. Rose, do you need something? And they said, no. 
They said when he stood up, I was in a bright red jacket. When he stood up, the Lord said to me, pray for him. He will go to the ends of the earth and speak for me because he is a chosen person. And then he turned to me. I I'd never had anything to do with Christians. And he said, young man, I and my wife are going to pray for you every day. Because God will be with you. Now, I didn't know I was Jewish. <laughs> I had no idea of our background. It was all kept from us. And um, the next day, at tea, you know, we always have tea. At tea time, my sister says, Mama, Lance stood up in church yesterday. And my mother wheeled round and said, what? And my sister said, he became a Christian. And my mother looked at me and she said, you silly boy. You become a Christian. If you're going to become a Christian, at least become a Catholic. Or, or an Anglican. They're respectable. But she said, a Baptist. Barnstorming people. She said, I will sue the minister for wrongful influence of a minor. Well, I said to mother, but you said I could choose when I was 13. Now, 13 is an interesting figure because if I now know, it's Pamit. I didn't know it then. So, Yes, my mother said, but not what you've chosen. But she never explained. Mr. Redpath came round to see mother. Now, my mother was a very fashionable lady. And um, very, very normal kind of person. And she expected to see some weak old gentleman fall up the drive, you know, the thing, and, and, and ring on the door. Instead, there came this huge fellow, a bit like uh, Malcolm, this size, blonde like him, an international rugby player, 31 years of age at that time. And mother positively couldn't believe it. So she said, what right have you got to influence a child who is not even of age? And he said, I didn't influence him. God influenced him. Because mother didn't know anything about that book and my prayer the day before. So mother collapsed. Uh, she said, okay, let's see if they're happy. And then mother never told us anything about our background because she had an idea that if the church knew that we were Jewish, they would discriminate against us. So we never knew it. So the, the thing that I ought to say is this. The one thing about C.T. Stout that has gripped me, gripped me then as a youngster and has gripped me all the way through my life is his words, all or nothing. If Jesus died for me, he said, and gave himself for me, there is nothing that I can withhold from him. And I said to the Lord that night at that baptismal, I by your grace will be all. I settled an issue at the very beginning of my Christian life. I surrendered. I didn't have any arguments with the Lord. I surrendered. 
two, three days after that, in a kind of, I can't quite explain it, but it was like a dream vision. The Lord appeared to me. I remember it very well. He was clothed in white, down to the bottom. And a great mist obscured his face. And in his hand was a vivid, huge light. And he just said to me, you shall serve me. And I said, I will. I thought he was going to send me to Mongolia. <laughs> One point a few months later, I said to the Lord, Lord, if I had ten lives, I would give every one of them to you. One for China, one for Mongolia, one for Tibet, one for Korea. What? And I went through the whole lot of these nations. I think the Lord had other ideas. But from that point I determined with all my weaknesses and failings, and sins, the setting sins, I determined I would be all for the Lord or nothing. Basically, that's my testimony. Years later, my mother came to the Lord. She went Donald and Jerry Adcox, some of you will know them, came across to England to stay for a week or two in England with Robert and Miriam Vickery, the man who built a Disney World in America. And my mother had never met Christians like these. They were normal in every way. And they invited Mother to go to the States. She went to the States for, I think it was four weeks. And we noticed a very great change when she came back. After the Yom Kippur War of 1973, it was clear that Mother had had dealings with the And then, one day, when I came back from Halford House, Mother said, take your coat off and sit down. I want to talk with you seriously. Now, I thought she was going to say, as she'd so often said, you've been, you've had all those studies at the university and classical Chinese and oriental philosophy and Chinese history and I don't know what else, and you do nothing with it. You should be a journalist or something like that. I thought she was going to say. But instead, she said, I've had a voice in my ear for the last whole year telling me to tell you the whole truth. Then she told the story I began with. Who our father was, how he had died in Auschwitz with 57 other members of the family. And how the cable had come from the International Red Cross shortly after we were saved to say that a Count Dobsky had been shot in Auschwitz and the rest had been gassed. She never told us because she was so afraid that we would say something in the church. And she said, they asked me, two of them are so happy my mother said, used to tell all her friends, I have a monk and a nun for a son and a daughter. She said, they live in the Bible. When mother told us the whole story, she said to me at the end, are you shocked? 
No, I said. It explains everything. It explains why the whole Jewish community in Richmond had always tried to look after us. Why the old rabbi himself had often said, if I could only help you, if you would only let me help you. Mother always said, we're not Jewish. Then one night, you know, the whole story of Halford House is another story. It would take far too long and you'd be bored stiff, I think. But I could tell you a story after story, of miracle after miracle, on the physical side, and people falling off of roofs and not even being bruised, without a bone broken. I could tell you how the gods supplied money. I've never forgotten it. When we needed money and the builder came to me and said, I need so-and-so. When do you need it by, I said. He said, by two o'clock this afternoon to get it into the bank by three o'clock. Then I said, I heard myself say, you shall have it. Now, when we first had this builder, I had said to him, we are believers, Christian believers. We believe in God. We believe in the Lord Jesus, I told him. I said, we're young people. We have no money. Are you prepared to work for us? Because we shall pray. And God will provide the money. And he was a cockney, a weightlifter. And he said, I, this is years later, he told me. He said, I thought to myself, they've all got money. Of course they've got money. It's just their way of saying, you take it out of the bank. God has provided it. So I thought of how a... But I never forgot that day when he said this sum of money. And then I waited for the second post and nothing came. Then I said to Margaret, who was looking after the house, Margaret, we must call everybody together, have a quick lunch. After lunch, we'll go in the library upstairs and we'll get on our knees and we'll ask God to meet us by two o'clock. And we went up, all of us, 13 of us, up into the, into the, the library, and we all knelt in a circle. Bill, the builder, came into the back door looking for us, looked in the kitchen, nobody there. Went into the main room, nobody there. Went across to my study, nobody in there. Then he thought, I know they're upstairs. So he came up the stairs. And while this old cockney, old man who'd been a seaman all his life, he was praying, and he was saying, Lord, we ain't got this money. We have to have it right now, Lord. Two o'clock, just ten minutes away. And Bill opened the door to hear him praying. And I saw the door shut. And I heard a terrible groan. And he went down the stairs. You could hear him groaning like an elephant giving birth. And then he stopped. At the bottom of the stairs, he found exactly in a great pile on the doormat. This unsaved man scooped it all up in his arms, came rushing up the stairs, threw open the door, said, you can all stop praying, it's come. <laughs> but how did it come? He'd only come past that, that doormat a few minutes before. Do you mean to tell me that someone stood outside the front door with a great pile of notes flicking them through this tiny little letterbox? You know, they had as much faith that w to give us the money as we to receive it. But what about the workmen? Unsaved workmen that were built, they could have stolen it. Where did it come from? I could tell so many stories. But there came a time when one evening as I was going to bed, I heard a voice behind me. I can't explain it. Human and not human. And the voice said, not go back. Then I thought to myself, I never turned. I thought to myself, who are my people? Are they Polish, Irish, Italian? Who are my people? I never said Jews. Because I knew 
deep in my heart. And I got into bed and fell asleep. Three months later, I was going to bed. And exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. This is my mind playing tricks. I got into bed and fell asleep. In those days, I slept very easily. Now I'm old, I sleep fitfully. So, uh, three months after that, as I was getting to get into bed, this voice said, Hans, return to your people. And this time, I knew, as I had the previous two, that it was the Lord. And I said, Lord, you have to understand. I have seen this work here grow from the beginning. I cannot. How am I to come out of it? How am I to, in some way, uh, 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 get free, as it were? It's no possibility. Nobody will understand it. So I said, now, Lord, don't be angry with me. I, am, I have grown beyond having to ask for fleeces. Do you understand what a Gideon's fleece, you know, confirmation? I said, uh, I haven't asked you for years to confirm something. I know that I have to discern what is your will. But this is too big a matter. Will you confirm it? And will you confirm it by giving me a home in Jerusalem that I would find suitable? Within two months, God gave me the hope. And the, it, it was miraculous in every detail. The way the money came, because I never asked for money, never made anyone, let, let anyone know what the need was. It came in its entirety. Extraordinary. Then I knew that I had to be in Israel and I had to be part of my own people. So that's the story. I hope it hasn't bored you. Uh, let me say something. It's no, it's not good enough to be a Christian. If you're going to be a child of God, you need to be 100% for the Lord. If you are 100% for the Lord, the Lord will be 100% for you in all your provision and all your need. It's very simple. Frances Ridley Havergal, the great hymn writer, we sang one of her hymns earlier, said, They that trust you wholly, find you wholly true. That's one of the first lessons I would underline. Here's the second. It's not good enough to just be a Christian. There has to be fire in you. The thing that caught me, like Moses when he was caught with the thorn bush that burned with fire and was not consumed, was that old missionary, C.T. Studd. A very difficult man. <laughs> but there was a fire in him. A fire that God himself had placed there. And I, with all my unbelief, it arrested me. I don't think anything else would have ever arrested me but something as remarkable as that. I'm old now. 
I have seen a number of servants of the Lord who had that kind of fire. It puts that service and ministry into another dimension. Well, I must finish. I think we're in for a time of enormous turmoil. Not just in the world, but in the United States. Economic, political, religious, social, on every level. I have no doubt in my heart at all that we Myself, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe, but I have no doubt in my heart at all that we are at the very big threshold of the appearing of the Antichrist. I'm not suggesting that any of your presidential candidates could be the Antichrist. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I am saying is this, that in this time of enormous turmoil, these monsters arise. Hitler came out of turmoil in Germany that wrecked the whole economy and the whole nation. Out of that Hitler came. Mussolini came in Italy out of a time of enormous uh, turmoil. Franco came in, in Spain out of a time of enormous Mao Zedong came out of a time of such turmoil. These, if I may say, are small fry compared with the one coming. Daniel, Daniel chapter 7 speaks of the four winds beating the sea, the typhoon-driven sea, and out of it came four beasts. And Revelation says exactly the same thing in chapter 13. John said, I stood on the seashore and I saw coming up out of the sea a beast. That means that you cannot depend upon your parents' salvation. You have to have your own experience of the Lord. If you're going to stand in the days that lie ahead, when everything that can be shaken will be shaken, you have to have your own original dealings with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord that comes from spiritual birth. Make your calling and election sure. Don't just trust the kind of assembly here, or the other assembly on the east side. Don't just uh, uh, put your trust in the fact that you have friends that are believers. Don't put your trust in the fact that you have Christian parents, you young believers. You have to have your own genuine, real experience of the Lord. Nothing else will carry us through in the days that I don't be afraid. I have a suspicion that God is going to do something in Israel and in the Jewish people. I'm pretty sure it's in the Word. Uh, that is salvation. I also have the strongest suspicion that God is doing a work in China such as he has never done in its long, long history. You have a responsibility as I have a responsibility. You may be American citizens, born in America, many of you. Some of you are more American than Americans. But you have a responsibility for the country and people from whom you originally came. As I have a responsibility for the people and country from which I originally came. May the Lord take this poor testimony of mine 
which is, I hope, more to do with the loving kindness and mercy, the steadfast love of the Lord, than of love's lament. And may he make it real to you in such a way that you will not be able to be the same he took hold of me and make you his own vessel for service. Shall we pray? Beloved Lord, we pray together that you take these poor words of mine and somehow make those words real every one of us. We are living in days of change, of enormous change, of turmoil, of confusion. Lord, we need you. You are the one unshakable rock in the midst of all this. We pray that every one of us here may dig deep and lay the foundation upon the rock. Not upon parents, not upon friends, not upon second-hand experience, but upon the Lord Jesus himself. Hear our prayer, Lord. We commit this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that this message will encourage you in your walk with the Lord and that each of you would know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him. We pray that each of you would know the deep, deep love of Jesus.